question that um, you probably will never want to hear from your pastor again, and you would certainly never want asked on a one-to-one -one basis. So don't put up your hand. But how many of you have ever been before a judge? Yeah. Oh, me, pastor. You know, uh, let me tell you about the time. <laughs> I have twice. Uh, once it was traffic court. I was there in moral support of someone. <laughs> Not that I have never done some things that would make it likely that I should be in front of a traffic court judge. Yeah, but it was quite a thing. I thought it'd be kind of like a Mickey Mouse. Oh, yeah, a big deal. It was serious, man. One guy was brought in in handcuffs. And the judge said, if you hadn't said the right thing today, you would be going to jail. And he said, if you come back in front of my bench again, you will be going to jail. Wow, kind of smartens you up, you know? And then um, in terms of driving, like, just be aware. <laughs> and then the second time, I was called to potentially be a juror at a murder trial in Woodstock. Not five, no, long time ago now, maybe more, more like 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, I was in the, it was uh, at the courthouse at about 250 potential jurors, I'm guessing, gathered in, in the Superior Court of Ontario. Uh, the, we were coached, you know, you do not talk, you do not use your cell phones, you do not wear a ball cap. Uh, when the judge comes in, you stand up, you do exactly what he tells you to do. And I go, judge walked in dressed in black, a red sash across his shoulder. He walked to the bench, which had to be minimum 15 feet in the air. So anybody talking to him literally was looking like this, right? Which ended up being me. And they began to call the names of all the jurors who potentially might serve on the ju jury and you would go up and you would either walk into this line where you said oh, well I'm willing to serve and as long as the defendant the accused I guess I should say would agree to that person then they would become part of the jury and then uh, those who did not want to serve would go in a different line and they would have to explain their reasons to the judge and he could either excuse you or not so we were really getting down to the last of it and I'm thinking I'm going to get away with this man like I think they probably had 10 jurors and you know it's coming to the end but guess whose name was called? Chris Little. Okay, so off I go. And standing in the line of people who want to be excused. Not that I wouldn't have minded doing it, but Easter was coming, right? Seriously, that, that was my excuse. And I, and I stood before the judge and I said, um, uh, you know, I have been away on a holiday, which was true. I'd just gotten back and Easter is just a couple of weeks away at, at IPC and we have a staff of six or whatever it was at the time. And, you know, churches just don't function very well without their senior pastor at Easter time, particularly the high point in the Christian year. And the guy looked down at me. I'm, I'm like this, right? Like, no kidding. Like, he's way up there. And he looked down at me and there was silence. You know, that stony silence. Kind of like I felt for Kendra today when she stand here and the technical difficulty. That's probably the longest minute of her life, right? But I mean, I, was, I, I just stood there and, and I'm telling you, it's intimidating being in front of a judge. I wasn't even the accused. I was just a potential juror. And, and I don't think he'd ever heard this excuse before or potential reason for, excuse, for excusing someone. But eventually he said, you're excused and off I went. It's like, Whew. I'm telling you, being in front of a judge is, is, is intimidating because in our society, judges generally decide between innocence and guilt, and if, they're, if, if, if a person is guilty, then they are sent to jail. They are punished somehow. And that wasn't my circumstance, but even I was intimidated in front of a judge. Well, we're looking in chapter 8 of the story today at the book of Judges. And where I want to begin is by telling you that a judge in this book is not at all the judge I just described to you. The judges in this book were not about sending people to jail or convicting them of anything. 
um, something very different emerges in this story. The context is this. The Israelites not only have been formed as a nation, they have been led into the promised land. Uh, it took seven years to ac accomplish the conquest. They had to go in and do battle to take the land that would become theirs. And this has happened. They, they, they have occupied the territory from the Jordan River on the east to the Mediterranean on the west. You can probably picture that in your mind. Um, and they're living in great blessing before God. God has promised them this land. His heart is to bless them and to be good to them. This land flowing with milk and honey they've looked forward to for 40 years. And finally they're there. They're in a place of blessing. Joshua has died. His ruler reign, if you would. Uh, his leadership has come to an end. And it is good. But it doesn't stay that way. It just doesn't stay that way. Two dynamics start to cause problems uh, for the people of God. Number one, when they were told to enter in and conquer the land, they were told to completely drive out the other nations and the idolatry of the other nations. They did not do it. They, they allowed some people from these nations to remain in their borders, and they allowed the worship of, of idols to continue among them. And there's a bit of a profound lesson there, I think, and it is very simply that uh, those who surround us have profound effect upon us. Uh, and these people were tempted into idolatry, and it led them to great unfaithfulness before God, uh, a, a real violation of the covenant that they had made with him. And that led to their harm. Second dynamic that's pretty huge is that a generation uh, which grew up following Joshua's death grew up without a knowledge of God. They just didn't know about the Lord. I'm going to read to you from page 103. It is from uh, Judges 2, verse 10 and following. It says this. Um, After the whole generation had been gathered, gathered to their ancestors, another generation who grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now think about that. Think about what we've talked about in our previous seven weeks and what God has done for these people. It is remarkable. But these people had no knowledge of it. Nothing remained in their minds. Then, can I say as a result, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asheroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. When Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. How do you think about that? How do you think about that, that dynamic, that reality? You know, <laughs> these people who had been so blessed by God came to a place where they knew nothing anymore of him. They entered into idolatry. They, they failed to be faithful to their covenant commitments. Um... They failed to tell their children of this incredible God. They came to a place where these children who became adults had no idea of who God was. How God had freed them from Egypt. How God had parted the Red Sea. How God had given them the, 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 the covenant and the Ten Commandments, His word. How He had given them manna and quail and water from a rock and on and on and on. I knew none of it. I want to tell you, my friends, 
there is a danger that we can become such a people. There is. I have quoted to you the, the phrase um, that the church is one generation away from extinction. It's a good time to use that quote again, isn't it? We don't pass our faith on to our children. To the point here, we don't pass on a knowledge of God to our children. The church could, if God allowed it, and he won't, but the church could disappear. What starts to happen in this dynamic for the Israelite people is that they have forgotten about God. They have no knowledge of God. The faith isn't there. The relationship isn't there. And what starts to happen, and it actually forms the book of Judges, is that when people fall away, God raises up a judge not to condemn them and send them into jail. He raises up a ju judge to lead them back to God, to restore them in their relationship with God so that not only would he know and love them, but they would know and love him. In chapter 8, you know, entitled A Few Good Men and Women, there is a repeated cycle that begins to play itself out. If you've read it, you've probably noticed the cycle. I'm going to briefly scan this, this cycle for you. Number one, it starts with the sin of God's people, which arises out of, out of an ignorance of God, no knowledge of him. And the sin is usually idolatry. Um, no longer was God their first love. No longer was God their greatest priority. No longer was it their heart's desire to honor and live for in relationship with God. They began to worship other idols. And they violated their relationship with the Lord. Second, after sin comes oppression. Um, the blessing and protection of God for his people is removed. I don't know about you, that kind of makes me stand back and think. But the blessing and the protection of God is removed so that the surrounding nations conquer them. Not only do they conquer them, they begin to oppress them. Which means they enter into a time of suffering. Uh, I want to tell you this, and it's absolutely important that you hear this and that you know this as we think of these stories today. This action of God to remove his protection and blessing is a redemptive action. What that means is that it is entirely to restore them, to draw them back into a relationship with him. He's got this goal, this longing in his heart to have his people know him and love him. This is what he needs to do in order to make it happen. But the reality is that they live in oppression. Eight years under the Mesopotamians, eight years under the Moabites, 20 years under the Canaanites, seven years under the Midianites, eight years under the Amorites, and 40 years under the Philistines, the surrounding nations. Not all, not all in sequence, but you know, as the cycle plays itself out over and over again, that's what happens. Conquering nations come in, and no longer is God fighting for them and doing incredible things to give them victory. He's saying, hands off a little bit. After oppression, suffering, comes repentance, comes repentance. Essentially what happens is they suffer so much that they hit bottom and they cry out to God and they get desperate enough to turn back again to the Lord. And I've talked a little bit about the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments as opposed to the discontinuity, as some people believe. This sounds a whole lot to me like the story of the prodigal son, Okay. And I could give you other illustrations from the New Testament. It's the same thing. People turn away from their, their God, their Father, and they end up in this mess before they're ready to turn around and return to Him. In Hebrew, the Hebrew language, <clears throat> the word repentance literally means to return. Having moved away from God, they return and move back toward Him. 
and into relationship with him. So after they have sinned and experienced oppression, they come to this place of repentance. And then the fourth element in the cycle, think of it as a circle if you wish, is that there is deliverance by God. And it is here where God raises up a judge to lead his people against their oppressor, whoever it may be at the time. Uh, and in this process, God again comes in his power and he gives them the ability to break free from their oppressor and enter into an experience of blessing. Now, I could describe a lot of the judges in the story for you. I can't do it, but I'm going to take a couple just to illustrate these points. Uh, the two famous ones, if you would. The first one is the man Gideon. I love, love, love this story. I don't know whether I can relate to him or what it is, but I just love it. The Midianites are the oppressor. Um, Israel is being um, uh, uh, abused, if you would, by this more powerful nation at this point. In one instance, this instance, the Midianites are coming with a massive army to essentially uh, take the crop of the Israelites, take everything from the land that they possibly can, which they did on, some, on a regular basis. <clears throat> and leave the Israelites with nothing. Um, Gideon doesn't want his crop stolen. So what he is doing as the story emerges is, is he is threshing his wheat in a wine press, which means it's essentially hiding so that no one knows that he's there so that he can hold on to his stuff. And it's in this instance then God comes along uh, and calls Midian to service and to do something great for him. Page 108 in the story. Who's got their story with them? Let me see it. Fantastic. You all get brownie points. Those, those people are first in line for coffee afterwards, okay? <clears throat> uh, Judges 6, verses 11 and following. Listen to this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Zebarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. If you ever studied the passage, you immediately go, mighty warrior, why is he hiding in the wine press, right? Shouldn't he be out in the battle? And I love this next line. It's repeated twice. Um, Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. <laughs> pardon me. Sounds Downton Abbey-ish, right? But pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord was with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have to save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? <laughs> Here we go again. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I serve save Israel. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. He's being honest. I'm no mighty warrior. <laughs> my people aren't even mighty warriors. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and I will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. How would you have responded that day, huh? Like, what a comment. What a word from God. Well, Gideon takes the word, and he, and he agrees, and he raises an army of 32,000 soldiers. He rallies the, the, the troops of Israel. Now, it is said that that army is not big enough to defeat the mighty army of the Midianites. Understand that to begin with. 32,000 people is unlikely to win. But God sees this army of 32,000 soldiers, and God says, uh, 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 too many people. Because if you go against the Midianites and you win, then you will think that your works have accomplished the victory. And you will take the glory for yourself, and it won't be given to me. So, so God tells uh, uh, Gideon, 
Tell everybody who has fear in their hearts, who is afraid, tell them to go home. 22,000 people leave. And probably most of us. You want us to go against the Midianites? We don't have enough people to beat them. We know what they can do. God looks at the 10,000 person army and he says, uh 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 uh. uh. Too many people, too many people. Um, what I want you to do, uh, Gideon, is choose from those 10,000 people based on how they drink water from a river, believe it or not, uh, who will remain in the army. And if you've read the book, if you've studied in your life groups and so forth, you know, or otherwise, you know that 300 soldiers remain. Now, I want you to think about this. 32,000 wouldn't accomplish the battle, uh, the success in battle. 32. But God says, I want you to go against these people with 300. It is lunacy. It is ridiculous to think that somehow 300 people on their own could defeat the Midianite armies. Well, what happens is that through these 300 people, God shows up and God defeats the Midianites. And I'm going to read the story for you. Uh, it is on page 111 in your storybook or Judges chapter 7, verse 17. Here we go. So um, Gideon has been giving his marching orders, if you would, from God. And he says this to his people. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp of the Midianites, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are uh, with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and a hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed their jar jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, they had encircled the Midianite army. All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, listen to this, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And it became a resounding victory for the people of God. See the message in this, my people? <laughs> my people. <laughs> God won the victory. Um, God showed up in power. He did what seemed humanly and absolutely impossible simply because his people listened to him, heard his word, trusted what he said, and did it. It's a remarkable, remarkable experience. An example of a judge leading his people to do what God called them to do, to gain victory of the enemy that they might come back into a relationship with him and to know his incredible goodness among them, not just through history, but in the reality in the present moment. Second example I want to give you of a judge is Samson. You probably all know of, of Samson, of Samson and Delilah fame. The Philippines are the oppressors to the Israelites. Samson is a mighty warrior who is given remarkable strength by God, okay? God enables him to be such a, an incredible warrior. Um, at one point, he falls in love with this woman named Delilah who tried to find out for the Philistines the source of Samson's strength, his power. Three times he lied to her, nice guy, and three times the Philistines tried to attack and take him by force based on what she had said, and they failed. They were defeated again, trounced by the God-empowered warrior. Well, the fourth time she asked him, what is the truth of the source of your strength? He told her, 
And while he slept, she cut off his hair. That was the source of his strength. Um, and the Philistines attacked, and they easily conquered him. His power was gone. His strength from God was gone. Well, they blinded him, and, and, and they imprisoned him, and they made a fool of him. I'm going to read to you the rest of the story from page 118, uh, chapter 16 in Judges, verse 25. Now, the rulers... Yeah, I shortened this, didn't it? Didn't I? I was feeling sorry for you because the sermon was going to be too long. So they're worshiping their gods, and they're celebrating victory and so forth. While they were in high spirits, they shouted... Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. He's like a dancing dog, you know? When they arrived, when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, listen, sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge in the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached um, toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more uh, when, he was, when he died than when he lived. Who, did, who died that day in the Philistines' ranks? Not only 3,000 people, but their entire leadership group. What happens to a conquering nation when their entire leadership disappears? Well, the Israelites emerged again in their own power, but by the power of God. I want you to hear that. By the power of God, victory was given to his people. So you understand the cycle, sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, back into a place of blessing. What, what can we learn from this? I hope you understand that the upper story is intact. I'm not mentioning this a lot these days, but God is doing his thing. He, ha he, he has seen Adam and Eve separated from him. He longs to get us back. He forms a nation through Abraham and Sarah. He frees that nation from Egypt. Uh, they wandered in the desert, but now they have occupied the promised land where, which God intends for them. And out of that nation will come the person of Jesus who will die on a cross and be raised to new life that we might be saved and this world might be restored to God's original intention. God's upper story is unfolding. But I want to tell you, this lower story of the Israelites, their experience of it, and can I suggest what we can learn from it is something else. <laughs> It's a remarkable circumstance these people find themselves in. And I want to just bring a couple of lessons to you from their lower story so that we can apply it to our upper story, so that we can live this story maybe better than they did, so we can enter into what God is doing in a powerful and a significant and good way. Well, number one, I think we need to start at the beginning. And it is simply this. We cannot become a people who forget about the Lord. We cannot become a people who have no knowledge of who this God is and no knowledge of his character, no knowledge of what he has done for us in order to get us back to him. Here a whole generation had grown up and they didn't know the Lord at all. We have to remember over and over and over again who God is and what God has done for us. How do you do that? 
Well, you might not be surprised to hear me saying this, but we have got to know Scripture deeply and profoundly because it is the book which records the action of God on our behalf. We have to make the pursuit of that knowledge a priority in our lives. And I'm here to ask you today whether you do that. We have to read it. This is the year of the Bible. I hope you're reading it daily. We're winding down 2018, but that has been our goal and our encouragement for this year. I hope you are studying it, and there's a difference between reading the Bible casually and actually studying it deeply. There are resources galore on the Internet that help people to get deep into the reality of what Scripture is all about and what it's meaning. We have right now media that we offer to everybody in our church. It's a remarkable resource for biblical understanding and knowledge. Uh, we have a library with tons of commentaries in there. They comment on the meaning of Scripture. They go deep. They help people figure out what it means. We've got to study the Bible. We've got to know what's there, what it means, what it's about. And let me, put it th- let me say this as well. We have to prioritize worship in our lives. Um, you know, because in that instance, <laughs> one hour a week, Somebody like me stands in front of you who hopefully knows something about this book and gets to explain it to you and speak its truth into your mind. We get to come together to recount who God is and what God has done for his people, both in history and what he is doing even now. Isn't that what we're doing today? Through the book of Judges? My friends, I want to tell you, we have to teach our children about who God is and what God has done for us. We have got to do it. Um, I've, I've asked you this before, parents of younger children in particular, I suppose. But what stories fill the minds of your kids? I noticed on television uh, this past week or two that there is a new animated Grinch movie coming out this Christmas. Who loves the Grinch? You know, we all love the Grinch. It's not a bad thing that that movie's coming out. But if the only stories that fill the minds of our kids are the Grinch who stole Christmas... And whatever else, you know, um, uh, Disney World, what's his name? Anyway, those people throw at us. There's something wrong. Like, I'm really serious about that. If that's what occupies the minds of our kids, as opposed to the powerful stories which witness to the reality of what God has done for us, we will be in danger of losing a knowledge of God by one generation. You know, do your kids know the story of Adam and Eve? Do your kids know the story of Noah and of Abraham and Sarah and of Gideon and of Samson and of other judges, uh, of David? Do, do they know the stories of Jesus, particularly his death and resurrection? Do they know the stories of the early church, the apostles, Peter and Paul and John? Oh, it's so incredibly important because we could end up like these people in the cycle. Lose a knowledge of God. What happens, we, we will slip into sin as usually expressed through idolatry. We are worshiping people, beings, and if we are not worshiping God, we will be worshiping something else. And if our children are not worshiping God, they will worship something else. So it's an incredibly, in itself, powerful point for us to consider um, as we think about what God's doing in His world. Second lesson, and I guess just giving it a little more attention, there only are two. Uh, is that we as people can easily slip into the cycle that I've described to you. 
both as a church, but I want to speak to it as individuals as well, because as we go individually, so goes the church. Um, so what I want to ask you this morning is where are you at in that cycle? Where are you at? Uh, you might be in a place of incredible blessing, have been, having been delivered by Christ and you live there. Good for you. Uh, that would be a remarkable work of God. But so many times what happens is that we enter into a place because of ignorance of, of sin and we walk away from God. Who hasn't experienced that? And as I say, usually, usually the sin is idolatry in some fashion. So my question for you today is, are you at that place of sin before God? Uh, one of the things I want to do is to ask you to not deny that there is sin in your life. Because according to the teaching of the Bible, which again is pretty important, reveals God's mind to us, all of us are there. Let me read to you 1 John 8 through 10. Now this passage contains two significant points. One is that we can say we're not sinful and we want to focus on all our, our good things and hopefully those good things are going to get his brownie points with God and maybe even get us into heaven. And let's just not worry about our sin. It's not an issue. It's going to make that point, but it also will make the point that we can be forgiven of our sin if we will simply ask. It says, if we claim to be without sin, anybody? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us, powerful word, purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My friends, the beginning of the journey toward God for anyone is to recognize first and foremost that I am a sinner before a holy God, and I need to be forgiven. That's step one in the faith journey. And if you can't take that step, you're not going anywhere <laughs> in the faith journey. You won't know the salvation or the deliverance of God. So number one, let's not deceive ourselves. Let's recognize the reality that sin, potentially, that place of sin is maybe where I am right now. But here's the point I want to make to you in this, this section. I've mentioned the, the cycle. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, blessing. You don't have to walk that journey. You don't have to live in that cycle. You see, the reality is when we come to Christ, we are delivered, right? I am who I say I am. I'm a child of God. I've been set free, we sang this morning. And when we're in Christ, we have been set free. We don't, we don't have to journey through what the Israelites journeyed through. But I want to tell you this. There's only one way to avoid it when we sin because we all sin. What we need to do is to learn how to quickly confess our sin before God and move back to that place of blessing. If we sin, we confess our sin before God and we move back to that place of blessing. You don't have to walk through this cycle in order to get back to it. Such an incredibly important thing. So number one, if we're in sin, we confess it. If we're there, if, we, if we're wise, if we're enabled by God, if we take his word to heart, we can avoid the cycle. But if we don't, we will move toward oppression. Are you in that place today? I want to say this loud and clear, and I, and I, and I want to make the point um, known. Not every time that we struggle and suffer in life are we experiencing the oppression of God. Sometimes God takes us through that wilderness journey 
and he's not, we're not feeling like he's present with us and we're struggling. Sometimes it's just an act of evil in our life, which God has allowed for some reason, but it's not necessarily oppression. But sometimes, and maybe even often, it is. You know, in the New Testament, again, again, I want to talk to the continuity of the Old and New Testament. The New Testament calls this God's discipline. Let me read to you Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 5. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. It's an act of redemption, restoration. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I want to tell you, my friends, (laughs) and I want you to hear this. When we are disciplined by God, when we experience the oppression which comes into our lives because we have chosen idolatry and sin, it is a blessing of God to us. You see, the the God of the covenant, the the God who has entered into covenant with us is refusing to let us go. He's holding on to us. You know, he could say, well, on you go in your sin and drift away from me and your life will be what it is. But this is an incredible God, and he says, I'm not going to let it happen. I love you too much, and if this is what it takes to get you back to me, this is where we're going. Even oppression was the case for the Israelites. It is the case for us as an act of blessing in our lives that comes from God. In the place of sin, in the place of oppression, are you in a place where repentance is needed are you ready to cry out to the lord and return to him Um, if you are chances are really good that you need to repent of idolatry and i want to take just a moment here just a moment and i want to emphasize and if you haven't seen it already as you read the story open your eyes to the reality for god idolatry is a huge problem for god There is no greater violation of your relationship with him. There's no greater expression of your unfaithfulness to him than worshiping something or someone else with your life. Let me ask you this. Personalize these questions, please. Is there a priority in your life that's greater than your God? Is there something or someone in your life that you love more than him? Is there anything in your life that comes before him in terms of your heart's commitment and your obedience and your lifestyle? Is he the one above everything else that you pursue with a passion? Or is there something else that's just more important to you than the living God? 
See, a life of worship to God is a life where he is the greatest priority by far, where he is our first love and nothing else can compare, where he comes first and there is nothing that we won't do when he calls us to it. And he is the one that we pursue with a passion. No questions asked. Put it in a different way. Have you fully and unreservedly committed your life to Jesus Christ? And are you ready because of that commitment to do anything that the Lord Jesus calls you to do? If you're in that place, you are worshiping God. If there's anything that keeps you from that, whether in terms of making that commitment or living it out, you're worshiping a different idol. There is something else in your life that comes before Yahweh. I'm going to be bold, and you are an idolater. The heart of God, the heart of Yahweh, is that you will renounce idolatry and return to him because he loves you and he wants to forgive you and he wants to bless you remarkably. But my friends, the challenge comes through scripture. <clears throat> and it is, us, it is for us to hear and it is for us to respond to. So we can be in a place of sin, we can be in a place of oppression, we can be in a... Um, uh, because of idolatry, we can be in a place of repentance from which we need to turn away from and return to God. Like it's just, it's that simple. We've turned away from God and walked into sin, and we have to turn back toward Him, return to Him, is the Hebrew word, and walk again into relationship with the God who loves us. Anybody here need to do that? <clears throat> are you in a place, or if I could put it this way, a time of deliverance? Here's what I want to tell you. No matter what your circumstance, no matter how awful your life might be, God is with you if you're in Christ, if you believe in him, if you have trusted him with your whole life, entered into a relationship with him through, through the Lord Jesus uh, and made God your father that way. God is with you. God deeply loves you, and God is able to meet your need. And he will deliver you and he will free you from your oppression and that's an incredible reality that's just like remarkable stuff <laughs> it only took 300 men I assume to defeat the huge Midianite army because God stepped in and did it like that it wasn't hard for God all, Midian, all Gideon had to do was to figure out what God told him to do and do it and the power and the reality of God showed up. God glorified himself, and his people knew who he was and celebrated his life. Here's the deal, my friends. This is, this is what this is about. God created the Israelites, and he has created the church. He has created you and me that we might be drawn into relationship with him, that we might know him and love him, and he might know and love us. That's it. God wants us back. And in that place, God wishes to bless you. Like, that ought to be mind-blowing. The God of eternity, the God of the, of the universe, not only knows you, but wishes to bless your life in remarkable and beautiful ways, time after time after time after time. It's his intention 
to give you the promised land. He's given you his word to bless you. <laughs> and he longs to work in these ways. question for you is what do you need to do right now in order to return to him? What do you need to do? What do you need to do to return to him to find deliverance, to move into that place of blessing? I'll tell you one other fact about the, the, the story of the book of Judges. Uh, it covers a span of 330 years. God's never in a hurry, by the way, to get his, get his work done. Have you noticed? It's like, oh, God, can't you come now? Can't you return now, Jesus? No. God takes his time. That's his wisdom. It's his way. But for 330 years <clears throat> before the, you know, they carry on, they're, they're, they're living in the promised land. You know how many years they were in oppression, under bondage, suffering? 111 for a third of the time uh, of this period they are oppressed here's the message it doesn't have to be that way for you it didn't need to be that way for them and it doesn't have to be that way for us we can be people who live in the deliverance of Christ live in the abundance of God know the presence and the power of God at working in our lives if we sin as we will yeah you bounce back from it through confession you sin against and you confess it and you bounce back into blessing you sin again and you bounce back into blessing you maintain that intimate relationship with God you continue to know who he is and be awed by his presence and his work both past present and what will yet come You don't have to spend a third of your life under oppression or any of it, quite frankly. So we're going to take a moment of silence now and we're going to pray, if you wish. And my question to you very simply is, what do you need to do? Uh, do you need to confess your sin and bounce back into deliverance and blessing? Do you need to, to, to recognize your sin before God and seek repentance from Him? Cry out to Him? Renounce an idol in your life, anything that is more important to you than God. That's my prayer coming into this morning for you. God, if people are living in idolatry, I pray that you will reveal it to them. And if you don't reveal it to them now, I pray that you'll give them the desire to seek you until they know it. That's my prayer for you. Has been my prayer for you this morning. So if there's an idol in your life, I'm going to give you an opportunity to renounce it and return to God. If you don't know what the idols in your life are, I want to give you an opportunity to ask God to reveal them to you if indeed you choose to do that. But I want to give us an opportunity, my friends, today um, to hear the word of God and to, to respond to it. I don't know what you need to do before God, but I want to give you an opportunity to do it. So let's pray. Gracious God, what a powerful... Um, teaching is in, in this book of Judges. And Lord, we're just like those Israelites. We're no smarter, we're no wiser, we're no more holy and pure. We're just human beings, but God, we know that you love us deeply. And today that you're, you're calling us back to you. You're calling us to return to you in confession and in repentance so that we might know deliverance, so that we might know the presence and the power and the love and the blessing of God in our lives every day that we live. So Lord God, hear your people now as they pray to you in silence. 
do your work in them now by your spirit that you wish to do, I pray, Father. And let them hear you and respond to you as you lead them. Let's pray quietly together now.